Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today I'll be talking about Season 6, Episode 8, Tabula Rasa, where Willow tries another forgetting spell and this time it affects everyone. I am Lisa M. Lilly mystery and thriller author, story expert, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. Along with a breakdown of Tabula Rasa, I'll talk about dialogue that's powerful because of what the characters don't say, themes and metaphors that work and sometimes don't in the episode and in season six as a whole and why, and a very clear plot structure for Tabula Rasa in the first three quarters of the episode that blurs a bit toward the end, but still hits it's all the right emotional notes. As always, there'll be no spoilers except to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Tabula Rasa aired the first time on November 13, 2001. It was written by Rebecca Rand Kirshner and directed by David Grossman. It begins as it should with opening conflict, this time between Buffy and Spike. This doesn't relate to the main plot of the episode, but it does set off a very strong subplot for Buffy. Spike startles her in the graveyard where she's patrolling and asks if they can talk, and Buffy says, vocal cord-wise, yes, with each other, no. But Spike isn't letting it go. He says, we kissed Buffy, and she responds, so? And he goes on, we we kissed, all gone with the wind, with the rising music and the rising music. Buffy keeps walking away from him and says it was a spell. Great way to get in right at the start of the episode that Spike and Buffy kissed and that it happened due to a spell. So much information in that brief exchange that is also full of conflict. Now Spike tells her not to get all prim and proper on him. He says, quote, I know what kind of girl you really are, end quote. And I am never clear if he's saying that because she kissed him, because he's sure she's drawn to the danger or darkness, maybe going back to that night she enjoyed uh, at least somewhat that was sort of a date out drinking whiskey with him. Or if it's a callback to the weight of the world when they were trying to wake Buffy up from her catatonic state and Spike hit her and said something like, when all is said and done, I wager the Slayer likes it rough. Hard to say, we don't know, but Buffy says she'll never ever touch him again. And then of course she does because at one minute, eight seconds, she pushes him out of the way of an attack. There are two vampires who are minions for a character who looks very much like a shark and is collecting loans. I looked this up and his name is Teeth. I'm just going to call him the loan shark. 
very sort of cutesy look for this demon, which signals that we are in an episode that might have a little humor in it, might be a little different than the usual one. And I like that because there is humor in this episode quite a lot, but it is a dark episode. The shark is looking for the 40 kittens Spike owes him. So another callback to that night out with Buffy and Spike. And she asks, why kittens? Why not money? And the shark says, she's funny. I like funny in a girl. Spike needs time, but the shark tells him time's what turns kittens into cats. The vampires go for Spike. Buffy easily fights them off. They comment on her being the slayer. And the lone shark offers her freelance work collecting debts. And while they talk, Spike runs off. Buffy turns down the offer, but it is a nice unspoken reference to Buffy's difficulty with finding paid work and her need for money. The shark says they'll track down Spike later and tells Buffy it was a pleasure. After he and the vampires leave, Buffy says to herself, if I would just stop saving his life, it would simple things up so much. And we go to credits. On return, it's three minutes, 50 seconds into the episode. At Xander's apartment, Anya wonders if Buffy walked on clouds or played a harp. She and Xander are sitting with Willow and Tara. The others all look down at the table as she goes on, and she notices and says she's just saying what everyone's thinking. And Xander responds, you are attractive and have many good qualities. Tara, though, reassures Anya it's normal to wonder what it was like for Buffy, but there are a zillion heavenly dimensions. There's no way to know other than that Buffy said it was a good place. And Willow, the most downcast of all of them, says that then they took Buffy away from that, quote, we were so selfish. I was so selfish, end quote. Xander, for once being probably the most emotionally healthy, says that might be true, but he feels weird feeling bad that his friend's not dead. So he is going to simplify things, and he says something like, me like Buffy, me glad she's alive. Tara somewhat agrees they have to stop obsessing about what they did and focus instead on trying to make things better for Buffy. Xander suggests a weekly dinner or a book club, short books, maybe videos instead. But Willow wants to fix it with a spell. Why not? A video club isn't going to do anything. She knows she messed up and she wants to fix it. And Tara is really upset. She says Willow could hurt someone or herself. And Willow responds that she knows a spell that can make Buffy forget she was ever in heaven. And Tara says, God, what is wrong with you? Xander and Anya leave to go get that phone that only they can hear ringing. Tara tells Willow she's not stupid. She knows Willow used that spell on her. And nothing Willow can say can explain violating Tara's mind. Tara can't believe Willow would do that after what Glory did to Tara. Another great example of a conversation that gets out exposition through conflict, but it also moves the story because these moments are key to the main plot. This conversation also makes me wonder how much time passed since the end of the musical. It seems like not much at all. Spike and Buffy haven't talked. 
yet about their kiss. And Willow and Tara, apparently Tara has not revealed that she knows about the spell until this moment. So I'm thinking perhaps it's only the next day. Willow didn't see what she did as violating Tara's mind. She just didn't want to fight anymore. And Tara points out that Willow doesn't get to decide that or decide what's best for them in a relationship. And she goes on that when things get rough, Willow doesn't even consider other options now. She just does a spell. It's not good for her. It's not what magic's for. And when Willow argues she's helping people, Tara says it might have started that way, but now she's fixing things to her liking, including Tara. And Tara quietly says she's not sure this is going to work. Willow is stricken. She needs Tara. She doesn't need magic. She'll prove it. She won't do a spell for a month. And Tara tells her a week. Quote, go a week and then we'll see. End quote. So we're about eight minutes through here. This is far past 10% through the episode. And 10% is usually where we see a story spark or inciting incident that sets the main plot rolling. It's, it's there in almost every story, film, TV episode, book, or it's sooner. And I think that here it was very subtle. If you go back, it was when Willow said she wanted to fix things for Buffy by doing a spell because that leads to this argument, to the reveal that Tara knows about the spell, to this moment where Willow realizes even if she goes without a spell for a week, it's not guaranteed Tara will stay. So this is a chain of events that happens very quickly and that sets off what Willow is going to do, which is yet another spell with disastrous consequences. When Tara says that, and then we'll see Willow's face falls. Willow says, are you saying you're going to leave me? The scene cuts to Buffy. She's standing in the training room. Giles sits looking up at her, and she's obviously asked him the same question Willow asked because Giles says, I have to. And I love this cut because we don't need Buffy to say it. And Willow has said it with all the devastation and loss in her voice that we now see in Buffy's face and her actions as she is so stunned. She sits down. Giles tells her to be strong. She's angry. He's abandoning her when she really needs someone. He tells her he doesn't want to go, but he has to. Buffy pleads with him to stay, but Giles is adamant. As long as he's there... She'll turn to him when she thinks she can't handle something, and he'll step in because he can't stand to see her suffer. And Buffy says, me too, hate suffering, had about as much of it as I can take. Giles tells her he taught her all he can about being a slayer, and her mother taught her all she needed to know about life, but she won't trust it until she's forced to stand alone. And for the first time, as I looked at this for the podcast, I figured out the heart of why this metaphor, life is the big bad, does not work for me, including Giles leaving. It, his leaving is kind of the poster child for what doesn't work about that theme for the season because it's not a metaphor and that's part of the problem. So if you go back to 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer in high school. Buffy has to act as an adult in that. She is forced to be the one to fight the forces of evil and take on a protector role that our culture normally does not expect of a 15-year-old. But it worked because it was metaphor. The vampires, the demons, everything Buffy faced was a metaphor for dealing with adolescence, for getting through high school. Her duty as a slayer was magical and it was a metaphor for for being forced essentially to grow up. So that worked and I could enjoy following Buffy on this metaphorical journey. But in season six, the life is the big bad. The problem is that, yeah, life is the big bad. It's it's not metaphor. We've got Joyce's death and Buffy's money problems, her need to care for her teenage sister when Buffy's only 20 years old, and to somehow earn a living when she already has to fight vampires and demons, which makes it next to impossible for her to hold a job. All of these things are not metaphors. They are real life issues. Having Giles leave her and tell her something like, oh, well, your mother taught you all you need to know about life at 20 years old and him believing, because I believe the character believes it, that what Buffy needs is just to have to stand on her own to manage a household, pay the bills, raise a daughter. Yeah, he he did give her that check, but she still has to do all these things. And that's before you even get to that she sacrificed her self to save the world and her sister and then got pulled out of heaven. And now she is depressed. Even before we get to that, no caring parent or person in the parent role like Giles would say, hey, what you need is just no support or help from me uh, other than some advice on the phone. Maybe uh, you should just stand on your own. I know I talked about that last time, but this is where it really hit me why the lack of metaphor causes so many issues with this season and specifically with Giles leaving. And on that note, Buffy can't believe he's leaving when he knows where she has been. And he tells her now more than ever, the temptation to give up will be overwhelming. She promises she won't give up, but he is determined and Buffy tells him he's wrong and leaves. And leaving is a theme in this episode. We have Tara contemplating leaving Willow, Giles leaving Buffy. Buffy leaves the room at the end of a scene. Often what happens at the beginning or end of a scene tells you a lot about what the story is about. Now Dawn and Tara are ready to leave for a meeting at the magic box and they call upstairs for Willow, but she's still wrapped in a towel with another one around her hair. Dawn tells her to hurry, quote, you don't want to miss the lowdown on our latest featured creature, end quote, which brought me back to my childhood when I used to watch a show called Creature Features. I can remember the music. It was a staple of my uh, watching horror with my brothers, and it was on the local TV channel WGN. I didn't imagine that Joss Whedon or the other creators would know that. 
until I looked on Wikipedia, which said that Creature Features is a generic title for a genre of horror TV format shows broadcast on local American television stations throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. What they would do was play classic and cult horror movies from the 30s and 50s and sometimes 60s, including Dracula, Frankenstein, and others like that. And when I looked up the affiliates, there was WGN in Chicago. Certainly the beginning of my love for horror, and it confirmed that it did play sometimes on Saturday afternoons or early Saturday evenings. So I have to tell my brothers this. They were sure it was at 10 at night, and I know my mother did not let me stay up that late, even on weekends when I was in grade school. Back to Buffy, at 11 minutes, 9 seconds, Tara and Dawn left. Willow magically becomes fully dressed, and she looks really cute in cuffed jeans, kind of hip jewelry. Her hair looks perfect, and it makes me think how different she looks, very stylish, from the old Willow, our sort of nerdy Willow from high school. And I think that can't be a mistake because Willow referenced her high school self in an earlier episode right before Tara and Willow fought about magic. Now Willow lights a fire. She takes out more Leith's bramble that she used for the forgetting spell in the previous episodes. And she says a spell to purge Buffy's and Tara's, quote, minds of memories grim, end quote, and of recent slights and sins, and says the spell will be cast when the fire goes out and the crystal turns black. If we see Buffy as the protagonist in this episode, and she does have a lot of the storyline, this is a classic first major plot turn. It comes right about a quarter way through, 11 minutes, 52 seconds. It's from outside the protagonist, outside of Buffy. It spins the story in a completely new direction because of the effect the spell will have, and it raises the stakes by putting everyone in more danger because they will no longer remember who they are. Now, I think the main plot here really is Willow and Tara, so in that sense, it's not as typical to have a first major plot turn that the protagonist instigates but it can still work very well if you do that that means you have a very active protagonist and what's lovely here is that it works for both whichever story you think is the main plot there is this major turn right here as willow says tabula rasa tabula rasa tabula rasa at the magic box, Dawn asks what the oogly boogly is this time. Are there zombies, vampires? But Giles says, no, there aren't any. Just as Willow walks in with Xander, she thanks him for his jacket. It was chilly out there. Buffy sits alone on the ladder going up to the next floor, looking away from Giles, away from everyone. Spike bursts in. He's in disguise in a hunting cap with flaps, a bow tie, a white collared shirt, a tweed jacket or a whole tweed suit and he asks them for asylum someone's after him and he means the loan shark willow as this is going on checks her pocket surreptitiously the crystal is glowing the scene cuts to the summer's house and a spark from the fire flies out and lands on a bag of leith's bramble that willow left on the floor by mistake when she rushed out 
Giles finally tells everyone he's heading back to England. Dawn looks shocked and Xander says, now? Not now. Not after everything. And this line is a perfect example of having your character not say something. A lot of writers would spell out what Xander means. Not after Buffy was in heaven and we pulled her out and all these things happen. And it's so much better not to say that. One, we don't need the repetition. Anya, in the beginning of the episode, speculated about where Buffy was. So we know where Buffy was. We don't need Xander to say it. Also, this tells us how emotionally charged this is for Buffy's friends. Xander can't even bring himself to say the words. It's not now, not after everything. Now, Anya asks, is Giles leaving for real this time? Because she's thinking about the shop, and it's not that she doesn't want him around, but she does want to manage it on her own. Buffy breaks in. She can't do this, and she starts to leave. So once again, that leaving theme here, and Willow calls after her. She's so sorry. And Buffy turns around and tells them everyone's sorry. She knows they want to help, but it's too much. She can't take it if they understand how she feels being back and Buffy says it's like I'm dying in and then at 14 minutes 30 seconds she slumps to the floor another moment of Buffy not quite completing that thought and as the audience we complete it for her she's dying inside and that too is more powerful because it makes your audience do a little bit of the work the other slump over as well Anya falls against Giles Willow and Xander slumped together on the floor. The scene cuts to the fireplace, a close-up. The fire is now out and all the leaf's bramble is burnt up and blackened. And we cut to commercial. On return, it's the magic box, but it's dark out now, so they've been out for a while. Buffy sits up and says, huh? The others gradually awaken when she turns on the lights. Willow and Xander look at each other a bit startled, and then Xander says, hey, and Willow says, hey? Spike rolls over and falls off the counter where he had slumped over. Dawn asks who all of them are. Buffy goes to Dawn right away and tells her not to worry. She doesn't know anyone either and doesn't know who she is. Buffy's instinct to go to Dawn, to reassure Dawn, remains, though she does not have her memory. And so much of this episode explores who are we at our core what is left if many parts of our memories are wiped away. My latest novel, The Forgotten Man, a QC Davis mystery, is now in the hands of my proofreader. I don't have a date for when the pre-order will be available because I'm recording this episode pretty well in advance. You'll be able to find it at lisalilly.com slash forgotten man. And here is the book jacket cover. Her sister's unsolved murder has haunted her whole life. Will investigating it after all these years bring her peace or make her the next 
victim. In the gripping new novel from best-selling author Lisa M. Lilly, lawyer Quill C. Davis is determined to solve the cold case murder of her sister. Shortly after Quill's sister went missing almost 40 years ago, her body turned up in a grave with another little girl. The killer was never found. Quill's parents were devastated and never fully recovered from the loss, made worse because they are still the lead suspects in both murders. Now, after investigating other crimes successfully, Quill turns to her sister's cold case. She delves deep into a web of deceit that stretches back decades. Someone is bent on stopping her at any cost, but Quill vows to make her parents proud and bring them peace. Even if it means putting herself in danger, she'll stop at nothing to achieve justice. But will Quill find the killer or become the next victim? Filled with twists and turns, The Forgotten Man is a page-turning mystery that will keep you guessing until the very end. And that is at lisalilly.com slash forgottenman. Willow now asks Xander why he was all hey when he doesn't know her and he responds well she's a girl. Xander is the most panicked. Giles asks if anyone remembers anything and he wonders if they all got drunk and they're in a blackout. But Anya doesn't see any booze and Dawn doesn't think she drinks. Buffy reassures them all. No one looks hurt or looks, quote, hatchety murdery, end quote. So they are probably safe here. Willow notices the books and the supplies and finds them weird, but Tara's excited that it's a real magic shop. Giles scoffs at magic. It's all balderdash and chicanery. Buffy reassures Dawn they'll take care of each other. And when Giles finishes one of his lines with saying they'll all be, quote, right as rain, end quote, Spike says, oh, listen to Mary Poppins. He's got his crust all stiff and upper with that Nancy boy accent. You Englishmen are always so bloody hell, sodding, bliming, shagging, knickers, bollocks. Oh, God, I'm English. And Giles says, welcome to the Nancy tribe. Spike wonders if they might be related, and Anya says there is a ruggedly handsome resemblance. A little bit of foreshadowing for what will happen between her and Giles, and it makes Giles smile. And he says to Spike, and you do inspire a um, particular feeling of familiarity and disappointment. Older brother? And Spike says, father, oh God, how I must hate you. This is a fun commentary on the nature of family. It is a great way for the writers to express some thoughts, but not by having the characters expound on how they see family. Instead, we get a sense of this is what Giles associates with family, familiarity and disappointment, which rings true with Spike as well. Giles says, what did I do? And Spike says, there's always something. And what's with the trollop? He points to Anya. But Anya says it's okay, they're engaged because she sees her ring. And she and Giles did wake up kind of slumped against one another. Spike calls her a tardy stepmom and points out she's half Giles' age, which made me think again why it is through the whole series Giles never seems creepy, though he's hanging around with all these kids. I don't think it was any mistake that it's 
Anya and Giles who end up thinking they're a couple because while Anya is meant to be as a human roughly the age of Buffy and Xander and Willow, she is over a thousand years old. It negates the creepy factor and the uncomfortableness had they tried to make Giles and Willow, for instance, think that they were a couple. Now it occurs to everyone to check their IDs. Willow reads her name and Tara thinks that it is pretty. They realize they're both UC Sunnydale students. Buffy and Dawn don't have wallets, but Buffy notices Dawn is wearing a necklace with her name. Dawn jokes she's either Dawn or Umad, reading it upside down-ish. Spike laughs at the first name Rupert for Giles, but isn't thrilled when the inside of his jacket says, quote, made with care for Randy, end quote. And Spike says, Randy Giles? Why not just call me Horny Giles or Desperate for a Shag Giles? I knew there was a reason I hated you. Willow finds Xander's full name on the inside of her jacket, and the two assume she's dating Alex. After a brief digression when Xander thinks maybe she's dating his brother, Anya discovers that her key fits the cash register lock, and she sees paperwork that Rupert and Anya as she reads it, own the shop together. He thinks it's very progressive of him to own a magic shop. Dawn offers to name Buffy, who's the only one who hasn't discovered anything about her name, but Buffy wants to name herself. She decides on Joan, which Dawn scoffs at. She says it's so blah. Buffy corrects Dawn's grammar and they quibble and then complain about each other simultaneously and conclude they're probably sisters and hug. Something else that seems to be intrinsic, Buffy not only had the instinct to help Dawn, they pretty quickly recognize their bond with each other. Buffy says they need to figure out what's going on, and Spike says looks like Joan fancies herself the boss. At Buffy's suggestion, they decide to head to the hospital, but when they open the door, vampires are right outside it. This is right around the midpoint of the episode at 22 minutes, 8 seconds. And this is a major reversal, whether we see Buffy as protagonist or Willow. Not good for any of them because they don't know what to do. Our friends slam the door, cower inside as the vampires pound on the door yelling for the Slayer. Tara says they need their memories back. Giles proposes they fight the vampires with magic tricks or whatever. The vampires also keep calling for Spike. Spike sees the stakes and thinks that must be what they want, Spike's. Buffy hears them keep saying Slayer, but thinks they are saying Slay Her. And she is appalled that they want to kill someone, a female someone, and who do they think they are? This shows Buffy's shift emotionally in those lines of dialogue. She goes away from fear and into protecting others as her primary motive, though she doesn't even know who she is. So it is such a nice way to show that we don't have Buffy say I'm not scared anymore I'm angry or I'm I feel like a hero but we hear that 
based on what she says. Willow and Xander went off earlier to look for other exits and they come back, tell the group there's a basement trap door leading to some tunnels. The group starts to rush there, but the vampires burst in. One of them grabs Spike, not impressed when Spike throws the stakes at his feet. Another vampire grabs Buffy. She's yelling and the vamp says Spike owes them. Buffy breaks away and takes on the vampire grabbing Spike saying, hey, stay away from Randy. She eventually stakes the vamp. She doesn't quite know what she did, quote, but it was cool, end quote. And she looks so thrilled. This reminds me of the Buffy bot where I talked about in season five how the Buffy bot is programmed this way. She enjoys slaying and she doesn't have any of the history or the conflicts or the sense of it being a burden that Buffy has the the bot takes joy in it and here we see Buffy when you strip away the memories of all the hard things does enjoy being the slayer and it's kind of fun to see that again at 24 minutes 13 seconds the other vampire takes off after saying he'll be back and not alone this is a little past the midpoint but Buffy made a commitment here too the commitment to protect others she didn't break away from the van and run off she jumped in to protect Spike and now she says I think I know why Joan's the boss I'm like a superhero or something so using both a reversal and then a commitment can really keep your story moving and whichever you use or if you use both at the midpoint it will drive the rest of the story forward. And that's why it's so important that at that midpoint, you write a strong commitment or a strong reversal or both. Because without it, especially long stories like novels or movies tend to sag a bit and lose momentum. Where here, there is plenty of that. Outside, the lone shark paces trying to decide what to do next. He is not happy about his vampires being killed, but he tells the remaining vamp that the humans will turn on him eventually, meaning Spike. Buffy hears that. She tells the others to leave by the tunnels. The vampires seem to want Randy, and she and Randy are strong, so they'll run and distract the vampires. Anya, though, says she has to protect the cash register and do some spells. First, she went to that cash register to try her key. Now she's going to protect it. So that has stuck with her. And Giles says magic might help. It's worth a shot. He will stay with Anya, also a protector. He gives Spike an awkward hug and calls him son before Spike and Buffy leave. They run out the front door. Vampires follow them, as does the shark. In the fight, though, Spike vamps out. He doesn't realize that happened to him, but he does discover he is a great fighter, and he thinks he's a superhero, too, and is puzzled when Buffy runs from him. And we cut to commercial. On return, Spike continues fighting without Buffy. The scene cuts to the others climbing down into the tunnels. Willow and Tara start noticing some chemistry between them, but a vampire confronts everyone and they all run. The scene cuts to Giles and Anya. She says it must be nice for them owning the shop together, but Giles off to one side finds the one way to get to London in his inner jacket pocket. Back when tickets were 
paper. He doesn't say anything about finding it. He just asks where should they start. And Anya brings him a book and says this is the one to use for spells based on her intuition, which she thinks she ought to trust being a, quote, natural at the supernatural, end quote. Giles points out he's a magic shop owner, too, but her intuition tells her he's less of the magic guy and more of the paperwork type. Anya reads a spell at random and a bunny appears and she screams. Her fear of bunnies so deep doesn't matter that she doesn't have her memories. And that's an interesting comment on the theme of who we are. Our fears, at least in this universe, are kind of hardwired in. Another emotional bond that survives is Spike and Buffy, at least as far as working together. And of course, Willow and Tara being drawn to one another. Giles might be an exception because of his suspicion of magic. I do see that as perhaps Giles is at heart a logical, thoughtful person. And if you take away his knowledge of magic, logic would lead him to believe what he does, that it's all fakery and he seems like he would be someone who would feel like he was too smart to be taken in by something like that. But we'll see that Giles' affinity for magic does eventually come through. At 27 minutes, 56 seconds, Buffy throws Spike to the ground. She's on top of him, pinning him, and he doesn't know why, and she tells him he's a vampire. He doesn't buy it, and she says, quote, check the lumpies and the teeth, end quote. For whatever reason, the check the lumpies line has always bugged me. It doesn't feel like Buffy, and I, I know she's not herself here, but I feel like she would say something more clever than that. Now she says, I kill your kind, and Spike says, and I bite yours. But he's puzzled because he doesn't want to bite Buffy, and he tries to sort out why he's fighting other vampires. And here the show takes a little swipe at Angel, and Spike says, I must be a noble vampire, a good guy, on a mission of redemption. I help the helpless. I'm a vampire with a soul. And Buffy says, a vampire with a soul? Oh my god, how lame is that? fun because we could wonder is there on some level Buffy's resentment of Angel and perhaps his elevated view of himself as a vampire with a soul on a mission and after all that mission we saw in I Will Remember You though Buffy doesn't remember it led him to sacrifice a life with Buffy so maybe somewhere that is in her mind back at the magic box Giles suggests trying a different book by now they are surrounded by bunnies but Anya's determined that the book that made these bunnies will send them back. When we cut back to Spike, he is pacing, philosophizing at length about how inspirational it is that he and Buffy work together, how much trust it takes, and Spike says, no thought of me biting you, no thought of you staking me, and Buffy, as a group of vampires approaches in the background, says, depends on how long you keep on yapping. So now we get to her annoyance with Spike also perhaps hardwired in. At 29 minutes, 30 seconds, the others are hiding in the tunnels. Willow and Tara sit close as they cower from the vampire in the magic box. Giles and Anya's argument has escalated. He wants her to be sensible. There are green clouds above them and lightning striking and tons of bunnies everywhere. 
Anya stands on a table to get away from them, and they bicker and argue. Giles and Anya, not Anya and the bunnies. The vampires fight Spike and Buffy. She still seems to be having a pretty good time at it, though it is a tough fight. The shark watches, clicking his teeth. Now Giles is sword fighting a skeleton as he talks to Anya, trying to convince her to try a different book. And it reminds me of back when he sword fought Wesley in the library. I'm pretty sure while he was reading something. In the tunnels, Willow asks Dawn how she is. Dawn says, it's scary but weirdly kind of familiar. She asks how Willow is, and Willow says she's a little confused and sweaty and trapped, quote, and I think I'm kind of gay, end quote, which is similar to what Willow said about vampire Willow a few seasons ago. Giles and Anya now are hiding behind the counter, still fighting. She feels compelled to take vengeance on him and hits him on the head with the book. He says no wonder he's leaving her and shows her the one-way ticket to London, which prompts Anya to fling her ring away. Then she's upset because that thing out there is going to eat her ring. We are now around three quarters through the episode. Normally here, we'd see the last major plot turn, which should grow out of that midpoint, take the story in yet another new direction, and sometimes raise the stakes again. In Tabula Rasa, though, I can't identify a clear last plot turn. We do have shifts in each of the narratives that are going here. And then we more or less segue right into a climax and the falling action at the same time. So the climax is where the opposing forces, the protagonist and antagonist, have their final confrontation and resolve the conflict. And falling action is where the writers tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. And that all kind of blurs together here, which I think is why the first time I watched the episode, I liked it but didn't love it because unconsciously I was struggling for which one of these stories is the main plot and where are the story turns and here it is more I shouldn't say a blur it's almost more of this gradual shift in transition and I think it does ultimately work very well because of the emotion involved but it works better for me on second viewing when I know that's the kind of story it is. So at 33 minutes, 7 seconds, a vampire has caught up to the group. Xander fights the vamp, and he does pretty well at first. In the magic box, Giles now has the book, and he whispers the words to a spell, and everything goes back to normal. This is where Giles' experience with magic carries through. He found that right spell right away. He and Anya are both relieved. They apologize to each other. Anya goes out and gets her ring back and admits to Giles that it was the wrong book. He apologizes as well. So Anya and Giles prevailed in their fight 
against the forces of darkness. And now in their falling action, something really interesting happens because she asks him, please don't leave her. He says he won't, and they kiss. At 34 minutes, 37 seconds, the scene cuts to a vampire lunging for Tara and Willow. They fall to the ground. Willow's on top of Tara, and that crystal falls out of Willow's pocket as they are almost embracing. Xander yells out to distract the vampire keeps on fighting dawn throws him a stake i should say she throws alex a stake because they have all been calling him alex the whole time and he dusts the vampire xander seems like a better fighter here over the years he has certainly gotten better at fighting but perhaps without his memories of insecurities and past failures xander is more capable Willow and Tara are about to kiss, but Xander, not seeing it, steps on the crystal and crushes it. Green light flashes, and everyone's memories come back. We see it in Xander's face. He looks stunned. And you can see this crystal breaking as the last major turn because this will shift the story for everyone but as I mentioned it's rather late and it goes right into the climax at least of Willow's and Tara's plot because Willow her memory back immediately pulls away and Tara looks stricken she's lying on the ground and we know that is it for them. If you've been wanting to write a novel, but don't know how to get started, or you've begun one but aren't sure what to do next, or how to fit the time to write an entire novel into your life, you are not alone. The length and scope of a novel and the time commitment to get it done can feel overwhelming. If that's where you're at, you might find my book on novel writing helpful. It's The One-Year Novelist, a week-by-week guide to writing your novel in one year by L.M. Lilly. It breaks down writing a novel into manageable parts. It includes ways to fit that into your schedule, whether you're someone who has regular hours so that you can work at the same time every day or every week, or if you have to fit your writing in, in small bursts here and there. The plan of the book is designed to work regardless and to ensure that you stay motivated and finish. Also, you can easily adjust the timetable. It's laid out to take you through if you want to finish in a year, but you can speed it up, you can slow it down, you can take a break, but it will help you get that novel finished. It's available as an ebook, workbook, hardback, large print, and audiobook. And the audiobook has a link where you can get worksheets if you want to follow along as you listen. Find links to it in the show notes or at writingasasecondcareer.com. Look under books on writing. Or if you want to borrow it, ask at your local library and they can order you a print copy or an audiobook edition if they don't already have it. That's The One-Year Novelist, a week-by-week guide to writing your novel in one year by L.M. Lilly. (laughs) 
Great acting by Amber Benson and Allison Hannigan there. So much in their expressions. And I'm sure that is also attributable to the director. This is the best example of the characters not saying anything. I feel like many writers would have had them have an argument there or say, you know, Willow, how could you? How could you do that again? But instead, they don't say a word. It is all in their actions, in their expressions. And we as the audience do the work and infer what's happening. Inside the magic box, Anya, startled, opens her eyes as she and Giles kiss. And we cut away. We don't see, again, we don't see them have that conversation. But we know by the way she opens her eyes that they've both just gotten their memories back. Buffy is almost gleeful as she fights the vampires. And she says, don't mess with Joan the, before she can say vampire slayer, she stops. Midward, stunned, she has gotten her memory back and a vampire kicks her in the face. She falls to the ground and stays there lying on her side as Spike fights. So Buffy was just blindsided by reality and by a vampire. We are at the climax, which quickly segues into falling action for the rest of the story and the subplots. At 36 minutes, 10 seconds, Tara stands and looks down at Willow. And this is their final face-to-face moment. As with the earlier moment, it is all in their expressions and their posture, and it is heartbreaking. Xander notices the broken crystal, and he and Dawn look at Willow, who looks stricken. Tara avoids Willow's gaze, and Willow follows slowly after Xander. Tara, behind them, starts to cry. In the magic box, Giles sweeps the floor, his back to Anya as she scrubs a table. They are not looking at each other, and Giles says, well, this place certainly needs a good tidying. And Anya says, oh, yes, yes, yes. And that last desperate yes tells us so much about how they both feel. No dialogue about how appalled they are, how disturbing it was. We see it all in the way they are focused on cleaning and are just going to talk only about that and nothing else. Buffy lies on the ground as if still in pain, curled on her side. And now we're going to wrap up that lone shark plot and reach a climax for the Buffy-Spike interaction for the episode. Spike stakes the last two vampires, and the lone shark approaches, tells Spike he's an odd duck, fighting his own kind, palling around with the Slayer and that suit. And he tells Spike not to worry about the debt, but Spike insists he'll pay. The shark leaves. Spike offers Buffy a hand to help her up, but she ignores it, gets up on her own, and when he asks if she's all right, she walks right past him and off into the night, and Spike sighs. I see that as the climax of their arc, which began with him saying, can we talk? But there is another moment that you could see as the climax. We'll get to that. 
or it could be part of falling action. At 38 minutes, 19 seconds, there's a live band at the bronze. The singer-songwriter, she sings goodbye to you. The lyrics throughout are so appropriate and add to the heartbreak of all of this. Buffy sits at the bar alone, staring straight ahead. The song lyrics are, quote, feels like I'm starting all over again, end quote. And we cut to Tara packing her clothes into a box during the chorus, goodbye to you. Willow sits on the floor in an adjoining dressing area, her hands on her knees. Again, not looking at each other. They are not going to be face to face again. So this is their falling action. Then we see Giles on the plane, alone looking sad. Back to Willow, who's near tears, staring at the floor, and then back to the bronze. Spike approaches Buffy. She's sitting at the bar, staring straight ahead. She looks at Spike and then deliberately looks away, and he stalks off as the lyrics say, quote, I want you, but I'm not giving in this time, end quote. And right then, we cut to Tara carrying a box of her things out of the house. Dawn stands, her arms crossed on the porch. Tara reaches out a hand, but Dawn, angry, runs inside and upstairs. We go back to Giles for an instant on the plane, and then to the bronze. Under the stairs, Buffy and Spike are standing and kissing, and we go to credits. And the more I think of it, that kiss, I think that is the climax of the Buffy Spike. I'll call it a subplot because we started talking about he wants to talk about the kiss, and now they are kissing. And it brings to mind something I forgot to mention from the DVD commentary by Joss Whedon on the musical episode. He said, when people stop talking, they start communicating. And he saw Once More with Feeling as a companion episode to Hush, where the characters could not talk. So you had much movement in season arcs there and particularly relationships where the characters couldn't talk. Willow and Tara getting together, Buffy and Riley finally kissing, finally learning about each other. And then in the musical, when people can't talk, they're forced to sing, they tell the truth. Buffy does not talk to Spike when he offers his hand to help her up. She turns away from him at the bar. They are not talking, but she's communicating. And then at the end, again, not talking, but they are kissing. That is it for the episode, other than foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. If you find the way I break down story structure helpful and want to try it for your own writing, you can download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. If you're not staying for foreshadowing and spoilers, thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for season six, episode nine, Smashed, where Willow has some magical success. The Rio breaks into a museum and Spike makes a discovery about his chip. And we're back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. When Spike says to Buffy, I know what kind of girl you really are, this line tells us 
this between Buffy and Spike is not going to be a romance or a love story. It is going to be a darker story. And this begins what I see as a a different Spike, where before I saw Spike's arc in season four and five as first the chip and then his love for Buffy propel him in a certain direction, but he gradually starts making different choices voluntarily because of those two things and moves more and more first acting more like a good guy where he says I'm a superhero too in this episode he acts more and more like someone who does want to save people protect them I see him as going through this gradual arc where he genuinely wants to do the right thing though he is fighting uh, I guess you'd say his vampire nature but instead here we're we're going to see the writers take it in a direction where now that Buffy has kissed him now that their relationship moves in that direction instead of continuing to become a better person spike will try to drag buffy into the darkness with him try to isolate her from her friends and buffy will have a lot of shame and guilt over this relationship and here is where i see a thematic issue that i have with season six other people may find it fine but i i feel like there is a mixed metaphor or mixed theme going on here because there is a strong redemption arc going on for Spike, but I feel like the the writers, either different writers had different views or they have in mind these two different themes and one is the redemption arc and the other is that Spike without a soul in essence is evil. So he he cannot be fully redeemed so long as he doesn't have a soul. So we we get all these efforts by the writers to show that Spike is awful and evil and make the arc be Buffy being drawn to someone who is awful and evil and how she starts to forget that about him. There is an interview with James Marsters that I will um, try to find the link for and post with Michael Rosenbaum. It's, a, it's over an hour, but in it, he talks about how Joss Whedon initially planned for Spike to only be on the show briefly, and that was because Whedon saw vampires as a metaphor for the problems of adolescence, so they were to be overcome, and Whedon was angry that the network and the fans liked Spike's character so much, liked the way James Marsters played him because he he didn't want this to be a Buffy Falls for another sexy vampire. He wanted the vampires to be an evil to be overcome. And knowing that season six's arc makes a lot more sense to me because it seems like Weeding kept trying to bring it back to that. And in some ways, to me, it, it I'm guessing it what's in his head, but it shows how sometimes as a writer, you have this vision and something else is developing that is great and wonderful, but because it's not your vision, you can't bring yourself to go with it. Here, what appealed to me about Spike, it wasn't the, oh, sexy vampire and I'm drawn to him even though he's evil, it was Spike's humanity that despite not having a soul and being 
wired to be evil, that being his nature, Spike gradually becomes better and better and becomes more in touch with the human that he once was. And from the beginning, it's Spike's humanity that draws us to him. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. He speaks his feelings. He follows his heart. I believe that's what makes Spike so compelling. And I don't think that is incompatible with Whedon's vision, but because it didn't fit, and I don't think he ever planned initially, well, he said he did not plan initially that sort of arc for Spike, I think that's why season six is kind of conflicted because we have sort of both Spike's there. And we certainly had the redemption arc for Spike going through the beginning of season six. And then, yes, eventually we will come back to it. But it's like the writers felt this need to go on this long, what to me is a digression to show Spike as intrinsically evil. Going back to this episode, that moment where Willow promises no spells for a month, Tara tells her a week, and then we'll see. This is foreshadowing the entire alcoholism addiction metaphor that we'll see with magic, those sorts of bargains that many people make when they are in the throes of addiction. Um, I'll only drink at night. I only will drink on weekends. And then the inability to stick with that. There are definitely some issues with magic as addiction, as a metaphor. I won't try to go into them now. I I just remember there were places where I felt that didn't fit, but I'll wait till we get there. And last thing from this episode, I always notice that moment when Tara is walking out, reaches out to Dawn, Dawn runs away. It too is heartbreaking. It adds to the pain of all of this. But for the first time, I thought about how much of Dawn's sadness and loneliness in this season is because Tara is gone. I'm not saying it's Tara's fault, but Tara being there in the house most likely added some comfort for Dawn. We'll see later. Tara is the one, though she doesn't live there, who stays overnight with Dawn when nobody comes home. Tara is the one who probably would have tried to say to Dawn, look, I know you feel bad. One, she would have recognized how bad Dawn felt. And she might have tried to say, look, Buffy is going through something. It isn't about you. And it's not that Tara can't do that when she's not living there, but it's it's obviously going to be much harder for her. She's not there every day. And I feel like if she were, perhaps she would have seen more what was happening and be able to intervene. Having Tara leave then is a great development in the sense of for conflict and drama for the season because it is not just about her and Willow. It's about the loss of Tara causing even more disconnection and isolation between Buffy and Dawn, Buffy and her other friends, and loneliness for Dawn. Now that I've made you excited about the cheery stuff to come, I will end this episode. Thank you again for listening. Come back in two weeks for Smashed, where Willow brings Amy back, something changes with Spike's chip, and the trio uses a freeze ray. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend about it, or share it on social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly, that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y, or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved.